I would probably do it sooner. I think it took a long time to build up the courage to do it. Um, uh, Scott Miller, my current business partner, and I will often talk about the difference between strength and courage. Strength is what you exhibit when you have little to no choice. You know, you may be hit with cancer or see somebody in a burning building. It takes strength to, to muscle through whatever that issue is. Courage happens when you have total freedom of choice and can do anything and you choose the thing that is most appropriate or, as I said before, that you can't not do. I, I lacked the ability to exhibit courage until I finally, in the case of my bad metaphor, let go of the nut in the tree. <laughs> And those are the words of today's guest. Hey, if you haven't met before, it's me, Karthik. And on the show, I sit down with the most creative and disruptive thinkers, entrepreneurs, and artists from around the globe. If you are an unconventional thinker or a rebel, welcome home. By the way, if this is the first time you are tuning into the show, please do consider subscribing. Just go to designyourthinking.com slash subscribe and... Stay on top of every single episode as they come out. In today's episode, I'm super stoked to introduce you to yet another amazing guest, Jim Jacoby. He built and sold one of the most successful privately owned creative agencies in the US. An avid motorcyclist and motorcycle enthusiast, Jim went on to create a limited edition of one of the most expensive high-performance motorcycles that came at a premium price tag of 350,000 US dollars. He commissioned designs that have gone viral and used by people around the world as tattoos and other art forms. While helping businesses around the world with his expertise in design, Jim's latest venture is an underground restaurant. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Jim Jacoby. From the DYT Studios, it's the Design Your Thinking podcast, a show about creators, entrepreneurs, and non-conformists, and the stories behind the decisions they made that completely changed the future of their lives and businesses. And now your host, Karthik. Given Jim's diverse creative and entrepreneurial background, I asked him if he could actually try and summarize all of that himself. You know, it's funny. I have trouble answering that for myself sometimes. Um, <laughs> in looking back, um, I think there's a through line, um, and the through line seems to be a strong level of curiosity and a strong desire for meaning, personal mm-hmm. meaning. Um, and so what tends to happen, I'm, I'm kind of born of... Um, uh, writing degree, um, college English degree, and things like that. Um, but really, all that did was help uh, build a sense of curiosity for what's around me in the world and what could be done. And so I kind of set off on a technical writing path, which right. turned into a management path, which turned into a entrepreneurial path, which turned into a kind of a discovery for meaning after some of that left me a little dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it. So like you said a moment ago, it's it's let me touch a wide range of industries. 
Um, and I don't really see, I don't see a lot of the uh, boundaries or categories maybe mm-hmm. that people like to group things into. So right. uh, it may be that part of our conversation kind of yeah. Yeah. trends in that direction for right. patterns and so forth. Uh, so you're based in Chicago and uh, you spent all these years f- yep. from doing your degree to uh, to whatever you're doing now in Chicago too. There must be something mm-hmm. that you really like about the place. I can't imagine being in one place, one city for that long a time. Uh, <laughs> is that right? On the first yeah. place? Did you grow up in Chicago too? I grew up as a child in Wisconsin, actually, huh, just okay. outside of Milwaukee. Um, and for what I, it's funny you would ask, um, when my parents were relocated to Chicago when I was Uh midway through high school, Uh this sounds crazy, but, um, in the car ride, the kind of first trip to Chicago, as we crossed into the area, I was like, Oh wait, this is where I belong. Hmm. And it was very visceral. And ever since then, Chicago has been home. I, I love the city. I love the culture. Um, the people are, you know, Midwestern, right. um, polite, mm. um, but fairly uh, aggressive and hardworking, which I really enjoy. Wow, that's that's interesting. How old were you when you moved in with your parents? Uh, we uh, it was midway through my uh, between my sophomore and junior year, so I was probably fifteen, sixteen. And what what so. what part of the city really attracted uh, or called for your attention? <laughs> You know, I was I was a suburban boy for most of my life, um, but more recently, in the last six or so years, actually did the reverse migration and moved into the city, which I should have done a long time ago. Um, and so I, I love it here. We're in a, a neighborhood called Logan Square, which is uh, arty and um, you know hipsterish and stuff like this. A l- little bit of a cliche in some ways, but um, it's a really really great town. It's got a lot of history. We're in a we're in an old building. A uh, church actually that was uh, built in the late 1800s. I, right. I love the history. So right. yeah, yeah. I saw that video of yours in, inside that building. I suppose. Uh, <laughs> did you ever imagine that uh, one day you would become like this designer uh, or an entrepreneur that you are today? No, I I didn't really look at um, that as a path. And to be mm-hmm. perfectly honest, I have a slightly cynical view on that, which is it's more about survival than it is about planning and making a, a destination of sorts. I think, hmm. like we were saying a minute ago, it, you can look back and find the pattern, but um, looking forward, it always feels very messy and chaotic. Um, my desire was to find ways to make money while still retaining my integrity and soul. Yeah. And... You know, that's most of what I did to get here. You know, it's a it's a very interesting line that you bring up there. Making money while kind of retaining your integrity and soul. <laughs> uh, do, do you think you managed to do that all these years? I think so. Um, I, I definitely lost that direction for a period of time. What, mm-hmm. at, um, what I think people would perceive as my the peak of my career at that time. So... I built a design agency up to about 150 people over the course of 12 years or so. And by all outward experiences, it, it looked great. Um, but I was kind of dying inside for a variety of reasons. There were some financial pressures on it and some people there who I let in who I shouldn't have and so on. And eventually, as that wore on me, I, it was more important to me to just leave, which is a really strange experience to yeah. leave. I, I actually had to ask somebody, how do you quit the company you started? <laughs> um, 
And so I did. And so then I was, I was a little bit lost at that point, but uh, I think it's good to kind of double down and figure out what you're all about. Interesting. I won't actually get a little deeper into what the advice was uh, in a bit. Um, <laughs> can you tell us something about yourself that, uh, you know, most people that you know, don't know about you, something that no one who knows you has ever heard about you? <laughs> Uh, that's a tough question. I think, um, you know, I'm an introvert. Um, I'm, I'm much more happy kind of in my head and writing and, um, creating worlds and spaces that are interesting to me. Um, they might be interesting to others in time. But I think there's a lot of exploration that go that happens as you kind of travel within. Um, and I don't know, there's a certain beauty to that. You're, we're, right. we're always kind of with everybody, but always also kind of alone. Um, and I think it's okay to embrace that. So I, I don't know that that's something that people don't really know about me, but it's something for me that's precious um, that I think is very important for everybody. So you did your BA in English in 93. Uh, again, mm. I have your CV here. So thanks. Uh, <laughs> went on to work in a company for six years and then started your own company in 2001. Mm. That must have been quite a steep curve from going from documentation to design. Now, what was it like to you know start a design consultancy? Uh, in, in the in interestingly, in the start of the millennium, t- two thousand one, when everyone is talking yeah. about Y two K and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I spent most of my time in ninety eight and ninety nine documenting systems for companies who assumed that uh, all of their systems would go dead right. uh, in two thousand. And um, what happened was, I was working for this company uh, called Whitman Hart, which acquired another company called US Web CKS, mm-hmm. and it kind of rolled up into a multi-billion-dollar organization. And it was really interesting because it was the first company; nobody had done it. It was the first company that had brand strategy, technology capabilities, and business management consultancy all in one. Hmm. And the vision to do that was pretty profound. And I think others, like you know, Price Waterhouse or right. or Bain or whatever, would make claims at things like that, but they're shadows of what March 1st was at, at its one moment of primacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, US Web uh, was a bit of a shell in its roll-up, and all of the financial issues that it brought with it ultimately brought that company down in an in a inevitable way. Mm-hmm. And what I experienced as... <laughs> You know, we were getting stock. I was, a, I was on paper. I was a millionaire for 15 minutes, and it was fascinating to watch a stock go from you know it's at 78 and you're like holy crap i'm rich and then it's at (laughs) 52 and you're like well it's not going to go down much further and then it's at 31 and then it's at 27 and then it's at eight and then it's at five and you're still trying to manage the company and you're you know you're part of the company and things like that and then it's at 12 cents and you're like well what do i do now (laughs) and so as we were going through that i was managing uh, i was doing account management for uh, creative and brand driven projects and what we found was a faction of the people from us web cks who came in Mm -hmm. were pioneering a process called user-centered design Mm -hmm. and uh, carolyn chandler and uh, a handful of others were extraordinarily prescient in figuring out how you direct 
incredibly complex decision making for large systems in corporate bureaucracies mm -hmm. and actually get it done. What, what I found was that the only projects that were succeeding at a time when a multi-billion dollar company around me was augering itself into the ground was um, were user-centered design projects. And so a friend and I there mm -hmm. said, hey, you know, if this is what works and this thing that we're in is not viable, let's go try to start it. Right. And so in, <laughs> in May of 2001, we did that and we didn't sell anything for months and months and months and months. And I was actually on my way to a place called Caribou Coffee to apply to be a barista. Mm -hmm. And um, September 11 happened. And then the entire economy came to a screeching halt. And then out of some bizarre circumstance, all of the work that we put in for the months prior as the economy started to flicker back into life in October and November, we in one day sold like 12 projects and the company just kind of boomed into life. And we... Wow we ran for 12 years wow wow that's 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 quite a ton it sounds easy when you sum it up that way right. <laughs> <laughs> so i suppose you were one of the earliest employees uh there at march 1st and then uh yeah you were there it was fairly early before we kind of moved out uh, yeah uh, you know, you, it's been a long time now since then, um, in, in close to 20 years. How different do you see are the kind of challenges that you've generally faced in the in, in the kind of work that you've been doing from then? Of course, let's talk about the time past the 9-11 to what you see today. Are, are, are the kind of challenges that uh, you, the problems and uh, what that customers have been coming to you with similar or things have changed? They are shockingly similar. Um, it sounded ludicrous to me in 2001 and 2002 that I had to be justifying this concept of user-centered decision-making. You know, that, hey, here's an idea. Put your customer at the center of your decision-making process and do things that... that um, I was almost embarrassed to present it at times, but mm -hmm. it worked. And what's surprising to me is that um, corporations and uh, bureaucracies, especially legacy businesses, still desperately need that mindset shift. Mm. And it's happening with uh, positions like CXO and others kind of filtering into large organizations, but it's still not great. And so for better or worse, I'm finding myself um, still telling the same story, but with a lot more confidence to speak truth to power. And um, that might help kind of um, right. expedite the process. Got it. So, um, so you, well, after all those um, years, um, <laughs> you know, seeing the stock value go down to 12 cents, you decided to start this company called Manifest Digital that was a design consultancy that was been built, like you said, on the principles of user-centered design. You've done some really fantastic work that I, I see that you scaled the company from six to 150 people grew the revenue from uh, to over a million dollars in the first few years. There's so much we could talk about here, Jim, but is there this one thing or project or, or whatever you want to call it that stands out in your mind uh, in the time that you spent at uh, manifest digital that you would like to talk about? Yeah. It, that's a really great question. And there are so many that any any answer does a disservice to a bunch of others. But there was one moment um, that really uh, was unexpected and, and still sometimes chokes me up. We mm -hmm. um, worked 
with an organization called uh, YMCA right. for the USA, and which simply means that it helped coordinate the activities of YMCA's all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so they needed new systems, and essentially, what at the time it equated to an intranet for servicing the different y, Ys across the country. Mm-hmm. And so as part of that process, we did the design, we came up with concepts that were fairly, you know, progressive in terms of like a binder concept for quote unquote scrapbooking digital materials, Mm -hmm. things like that. And so we um, did all that. And then we went out into the field to test that um, with different size YMCA's and things like that. Mm -hmm. And walking out of one of those organizations Oh, uh, I can't even put a face to it, but a woman, let's say, grabbed my shirt sleeve and said, don't, don't leave without delivering this. We need this. This will change people's lives. And I, you know, intellectually could understand that that was a real thing before then, but I'd never been touched by it. And I, I left that room in a basement of a YMCA, which was trying to service children and homeless men Mm -hmm. and realized wait a minute, this really, really matters. Right. And that was a, that was a big eye opener for me. And it, it kind of changed the way I thought about the work going forward. That was fairly early in the manifest days. Wow. That's like real time feedback coming in right through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. Jim was nice enough to share his CV because of his extensive experience. And in that, he interestingly was mentioning this, that during our highest performing times, our top leaders were all women. Now, I was curious as to why did he choose to put something like this inside his CV? I think it's so important that you think you should put it on a CV. What does it mean to you? God, that's a great question. I... Uh, to be perfectly frank and selfish, um, I call it out because it factually was the best that company ever was. Um, we had our head of technology was Heidi Williams, our head of user experience was mm-hmm. Carolyn, our head of um, design um, was Christine, and so on and so forth. And so um, there was there was never a time that that company produced better work, came up with better ideas, um, and so on. And it was at a time, it was long, long before, um, especially in design and technology, this kind of equality was front and center. Hmm. And so I just think it's incredibly important to note that. And again, selfishly, I'd like to repeat it. (laughs) It was glorious. Um, So let's let's do it again. I I guess I'm putting it out into the universe to, to say, let's try one more time. For a very long time, I have seen tattooed triangles on people's arms and necks. In fact, I had interviewed someone early on in the show who uses some of them as her signature. But it was when I looked at Jim's CV did I realize that these triangles were called the manifest glyphs and that he was the person who actually created them. So I was curious to understand more about what motivated him to do this and how did it come about? Can you talk a little bit about the glyphs that you helped create, uh, Jim? Sure. So, um, in, as is the case in many situations in my life, I didn't necessarily create them, but I did, mm. uh, let's just say, commission them and provide, if nothing else, the the impetus or ask to say, hey, this 
maybe this should exist and I'll, I'll provide the environment for it mm-hmm. to come to life. And so in that case, um, a, an extraordinary company called eight hour day, which is a husband and wife team of Nate and Katie um, worked mm-hmm. with us to redesign the manifest brand, which had been, you know, not great for a number of years. Mm-hmm. It was okay. You know, but um, we knew that as we kind of went from, let's say 70 ish people towards doubling that size, we needed to have a presence that was national, if not international. And mm-hmm. so we, did that project and part of it started to emerge that this was in in the process of their interviewing me and others that this wasn't just a design agency or design consultancy this was a way of living this was a belief system mm. and it tongue-in-cheek um to your point about cults i would occasionally internally be called the david koresh of digital because it was just you know there's a passion behind it i care deeply about it and you know there's nothing malevolent behind it mm-hmm. but there is a certain when it starts to get to the the fabric of who you are right. um those conversations do emerge but the results are powerful and yeah. so we created a glyph system that would be the beginning of a basis for representing things that are sometimes beyond words mm. um you know things like uh challenges or overcoming um or what have you right. and uh we were I actually didn't know that it became an international movement until a couple of years later wow. um, because of the distractions I had with within my company. So um, it was uh, very rewarding to see that kind of reflected back over time. Oh, wow. That's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, for you to, I mean, like you said, you, you didn't create it, but then you tried to help commission it. So uh, when you try and commission something or you want to have, you want to spend your time on on a project or something. How do you go about deciding whether you should or shouldn't? <laughs> uh, I, that's a great question. I think that I've been more driven by um, this concept, this awareness that I can't not do something. I see. Um, and that sounds like an odd um, proposition, but the gist of it is, if I don't do this, I will regret it. Um, mm. If this doesn't exist, I will feel that the world is less for it. And so um, that was basically it. I mean, I've had that, I've had that reaction, you know, we'll talk about it later maybe, but the motorcycle right. project, people would come up and say, thank you for doing this. The world is better for having it. And it's mm. like, you do not do a project like that expecting somebody to say that. And when you sort of well up with tears, when you hear it, it's, you realize, Oh yeah, yeah. That was my instinct to follow. My gut was right. And so the best answer I can give you is to, here's the answer I would give you. We all exist in body, mind, heart, and soul. Mm -hmm. There are four tracks to all of us, possibly more, but if I'm aware of the four tracks at all times and understanding which one is trying to lead in certain cases, mm. I'll make good decisions. And that's a, a big part of our thought process in the, in the more current days. You earlier on said that when you had those thoughts about moving out of manifest for reasons that you mentioned, you went on to get advice on quitting the company that you started. What was the advice that you received? Um, the better advice what, the backhanded advice was, you know, you're making good money and you don't seem able to let go of that even 
in spite of the harm it might be causing you or others. And the advice I got was a, an old parable about the, uh, uh, the uh, squirrel with a nut in its hand, but in, mm. you know, through a knot in inside the tree. And as long as that squirrel holds onto that nut, his fist can't get out of the tree. Mm. He's got the nut, but he can't go anywhere. Right. And that was really what I was living in until I let go of that and got my hand out. And it was terrifying to let go of everything I'd had, but yes. I got out of it. I could go other places. And so the advice I got was, you know, you're going to be better off, even as scary as it is, to, to move on to something else. So based on that advice that he received, Jim decided to kind of move on from Manifest and look at other opportunities in life. But the whole transition from having to move out of something that you actually created and starting all over again from ground up must have been a really terrible one. So I was curious, what are the biggest learnings Jim had from this experience? The biggest learnings are, um, it's back to that journey within. Um, If you know that there is a truth, however quiet it may be inside you, Mm -hmm. and you align with your truth, um, people, things, circumstances outside of you will realign with you and or without you and so those who are claimed to be friends um before your realignment and who are not afterward Mm -hmm. don't belong to you and you don't belong to them and that's okay um so the the biggest learning i had and it was shocking was um how few friends i actually had um people who worked for me or people who were commissioned by me or you know uh supported by me in some way evaporated and that was extremely disappointing um but immediately behind that i've met uh two people walked into my life who probably otherwise wouldn't have had the space i wouldn't have had the space for and they are you know soulmates at this point from all the learnings that you have today would you do it the same way would you do it differently that's a great question. I I would probably do it sooner. I think it took a long time to build up the courage mm. to do it. Um, uh, Scott Miller, my current business partner, and I will often talk about the difference between strength and courage. Strength is what you exhibit when you have little to no choice. You know, you may be hit with cancer or see somebody in a burning building. It takes strength to, to muscle through whatever that issue is. Courage happens when you have total freedom of choice and can do anything and you choose the thing that is most appropriate or, as I said before, that you can't not do. Right. I, I lacked the ability to exhibit courage until I finally, in the case of my bad metaphor, let go of the nut in the tree. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. It was right behind it, so it was great. You went on to start uh, ADMCI, which is uh, American Design and Mastercraft Initiative. Um, what, what was the whole idea behind starting something like that? It was as much a hope as it was um, an intention. Uh, it was a desire to find what craftsmanship was. Um, my sense of user-centered design had eroded um, my uh happiness with the work that was happening uh, eroded and so I set off to, to say well let me find 
craftspeople, um, especially people who exhibit a level of master craftsmanship or mastery, and study them and Hmm. see if I can learn from that and bring it back to other aspects of my life, which include, you know, perhaps at the time, if you would have asked me at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, will I come back to digital design? I would have said no way in hell. But uh, it has become the case that that was actually a healing process and I could bring those learnings back into my one thing I kind of know how to do in life. So, Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just curious here, why did you name it that way? I mean, I've had a lot of people say it's a terrible name. No, no, no. Um, I don't think it's it's, a terrible name. I'm just curious that uh, uh, you you just chose to call it American Design Master Craft. There are two parts that actually uh, made me curious. One is American. The second is uh, Master Craft. Yeah. And third is, of course, Initiative. Way Initiative. Yeah. No, yeah. It's it's a descriptor as much as it might be... uh, (laughs) Uh, a name we've I've actually worked with somebody who is high in like Hollywood echelons and tried to work with me to rename it. It was just awful, but um, it is, you know, the American aspect in my opinion, uh, America, bef- and this was a time before where we are now in the last few years, but it was a, a period where I think we were anticipating the sense of, of loss of meaning hmm. and, um, the damage that that can cause and the mani- manipulation that can emerge out of that um, loss of of confidence and focus and mm-hmm. and belief. And I think we're living that right now. Um, the master craft is a sense of what, how come, why is it that um, in making a physical thing, you can call that craftsmanship, a chair, you know, a Frank Lloyd Wright house, whatever, mm-hmm. but you can't call a website, Mastercraft, hmm. and I, that bothered me um, because I believe that the biggest impact that anybody's going to have on the human condition are those who are making digital products and experiences. Right. And so I wanted to bridge that gap. Um, and then the initiative was acknowledging that we didn't know what shape it would take, and even mm-hmm. when I'd started it, I didn't know that I would ultimately engage a uh, master motorcycle designer builder. Right. Or that um, we would eventually create a restaurant, or you know, so on. Right, right. So I wanted to leave it open, and ADMCI has become a, a an umbrella for a variety of things. And it's .org, not .com, which is not a company, but a nonprofit. Or it is usually nonprofit. Right? Component. It's a nonprofit, I suppose. Yeah, it's a, there's a component of a foundation to it, um, and there are components of it that are that are very much commercial. Um, you know, so, so it's a blend. Jim met his co-founder Scott Miller at a writer's retreat and I was curious as to why meeting him actually made him think about starting a company together with him. Um, I knew I didn't I don't know I've never been um, I've never enjoyed doing as much that's a great question no, as no, much I'm as I am that while I think uh, the reason I'm asking that is simply because starting a company is like getting married in a lot of ways exactly and you don't want to do that with anybody so I'm sure yep. uh, there was something that you saw uh, beyond all the other explanations that you might give on a usual day. Just curious. <laughs> it's such a great question. So I mentioned there are two people who kind of walked into my life. Uh, the first one is Molly, who uh, is now my fiance. When I first saw her, I knew nothing about her. Hmm. I said, that person is everything that a woman could and should be and i need to know who that is and Hmm. and 
learn from her. The same thing on a uh, platonic level happened with Scott. I met him and, and I knew that he knew things and had had experiences and was everything that a business person and man could be that I would want to learn from. And I don't know if it's the universe or what, but those two people walked into my life at roughly the same time and solved two halves of my being in ways that hadn't been solved in my entire life before. So that's a pretty heavy answer, but <laughs> the gist of it is Scott is that. I, I think I think I could make sense out of that. I could live with that. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the, the, the one thing that actually uh, got, uh, you know, got you into my radar which is the the motorcycle uh, the Bayernville correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrongly but I suppose it's called Bayernville Legacy Commission is that right? Yeah that's right it's it's French um, it's the Bayernville <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so you know that that's not a name that comes to my mind when I think of a motorcycle uh, so you know tell us a story there how did, how did it uh, come about? Sure. The gist of it is, um, I, as I mentioned, I went looking for people who were masters of their craft. Right. And I was into motorcycles, you know, as a rider before mm -hmm. then. And a friend of mine said, hey, you should go find JT Nesbitt. He's he's an impressive guy. He's built motorcycles that are iconic. And I don't know what he's been doing lately. And so we had uh, the conference for UX for Good in New Orleans to solve for making music and those in that industry mm. more sustainable and better rewarded. So while that was going on, I just took a side trip to go meet JT. And I figured, you know, this is going to be a 15-minute conversation. He'll probably be annoyed that somebody's there. Mm. And he'll brush me out of his studio. And But I'll learn a couple things. And 15 minutes after meeting him, we were headed off to a local bar and Three hours later, we were drunk and trying to solve the problems of the world. And that turned wow. into me asking him a question, which was, "What? Well, okay, you've done some amazing stuff. What would you design if you could design anything at all? Hmm. And I know that's a regular part of my conversation with just about anybody new that I meet. Yeah. And he, his answer was spot on. He said, I would design the motorcycle that answered all the questions the Wraith asked. And the Wraith was something that he was most profoundly known for. Mm -hmm. And that my my response or kind of subtle reaction at that time was I need to be a part of this. Right. So we set to work to figure out how he could achieve that um, next level accomplishment and how I could help participate in supporting that through mm -hmm. what turned out to be a commission. Wow. So you know, I don't know. There are so many motorcycles out there. There are so many companies building it. Um, mm -hmm. Why you? Yeah, why? Yeah, exactly. Um, no reason and no, uh, no appropriate reason. Um, what we did was we commissioned JT in a way that let him do things that no motorcycle company or rational business person would allow for. Um, we let him uh, essentially build something that has no frame. Um, so it is infinitely configurable for its geometry, which is not doesn't exist anywhere in the market. So you mm. can change it from a touring setup to a racing setup and anything in between. And he implemented technologies that had never been done before. So the suspension for the bike is actually a, what's called a leaf spring, which is the backbone of the bike and so mm. provides its structure. Um, we received, because of that, um, first application patents on suspension and subsequently steering. Wow which is never done in an object that's over, 
you know, a hundred years old and has been worked on by thousands of people. Um, so we gave, we gave him an, a slightly absurd amount of freedom and we gave, we've established together a a slightly absurd goal, which was to change the motorcycle industry in some meaningful way. And we said, we will put ourselves on the line to help you get there. And so ultimately it turned out that Scott and I were, you know, putting ourselves financially at risk and in some cases bodily. Um, and we, we managed the project in JT in a way that, um, ensured that he didn't get too far out over his skis because that level of freedom can be, uh, can be overwhelming if not catastrophic. So it was a balance. What, what, you know, just curious here, um, you know, with, with all of that freedom that you gave, uh, JD, uh, what, what was your goal? What, what, what did you have in mind? You obviously had a, you were expecting to see a motorcycle, but then what was the ultimate goal of that project? We, uh, it was simply to observe him. Hmm. That was it. We had no intention of having a bike that would be uh, financially viable or market viable. Um, we wanted to see why he got up in the morning. We wanted to see why he stopped working at, uh, at whatever time. Right. We wanted to see why he made decisions, you know, in the moment for use, you know, use a bolt that exists mm-hmm. on the market and purchase it or machine and create your own bolt. Because if you do, you'll only need two sizes throughout the entire bike. Those kinds of things we wanted to understand better so that we could get closer to this ephemeral concept of craftsmanship. And we did. And we produced materials that are feeding, you know, book writing and a ton of material that could eventually feed a documentary if we wanted to get to work on it. But the goal really was to carry that learning back to other industries, as I said before, and and we definitely accomplished that. But the surprise was we produced a a world beating bike that everybody wanted to see. And so we ended up having to not having to, but it was was a wonderful problem to be invited to Salon Privé and Goodwood Festival of Speed and Big Boy Toys and Abu Dhabi and all these crazy places because people just wanted to see the bike. What was one thing that you learned from JT that just stands at the top of your mind that you think um, folks listening can learn from? (laughs) <laughs> I know it's the, tough, but then one. The the main thing is that your heroes are fallible. Um, hmm. the, JT uh, likes to live in a space that is uh, heroic and unquestioned. Mm-hmm. And we gave him a lot of that space. Um, but as that space started to evolve towards the end of the project, mm-hmm. um, he started to face some difficult decisions and the weight of the work that he'd produced over the preceding three years. And so uh, concepts that we had worked on together, the three of us, Scott and JT and I eventually became um, uh, in, in opposition to where JT at least wanted to go at that time. Mm. Uh, So, you know, never make financial decisions that limit your decisions and freedom and design choice would be one of them. And JT at some point wanted to go into debt to make some decisions Hmm. for that project that Scott and I didn't agree with. And so we held to our principles and, Hmm. you know, the center of the design process at that moment was leaving those principles. And so Hmm. we, we ultimately began to figure out that that was, we were not a good fit for each other continuing on. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, is it bad? Is it, is it, is it disappointing? 
not necessarily. It just is yeah. what it is. Yeah. But um, here, we're, here we're, uh, putting somebody on a pedestal is, is a dangerous place to have anybody. Nice. So the, the it, it's not a normal motorcycle. It costs $350,000. <laughs> what? Yep. Why did it cost so much? Was it because of the time or because of what went into it in terms of materials? Both, yeah. So it was roughly 1,600 hours of time per bike. Um, it was the best material you could get for any component of the bike. So we would joke um, the the kickstand is the most expensive kickstand ever produced. It's a titanium kickstand. Um, and so every piece of metal that could be titanium is um you know, every other component that could be as light as humanly possible is carbon fiber. Wow. Um, so the structural components, which is still somewhat rare, especially in motorcycles, the structural components are carbon fiber, which makes it incredibly light. Right. Um, so yeah, we just, again, made decisions that were performance first right. um, and see where it goes. Right. And, and which part of this whole process did you really love the most? <laughs> um, you know, you, you love the, uh, the attention for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, what I love, I have, I'm sitting in front of one of the three bikes here. Nice. Um, what I love is the fact that there is an artifact. There's, there is a, an outcome, um, a byproduct of searching for an important idea. And that idea is a definition of craftsmanship. Mm. And here we have uh, an extraordinary bike that people have climbed over each other to see and in some right. cases to attempt to buy. Right. So it's, it's very rewarding. Nice. You know, uh, you've obviously done so much of uh, work on different kinds of things. But as, you know, as entrepreneurs or actually as humans, I think every, every decision that we're making, everything, every time we're doing something, we're building something, there, there is this, I'd like to believe that we are creating this body of work but that we kind of leave behind uh, mm -hmm. as something that uh, the generations to follow can uh, learn from or, or whatever. They can, <laughs> they can see that and do something with it. Is there, is there some kind of work that you've always wanted to do, Jim, that you haven't had a, uh, a chance to work on so far? Um, I think that it's a matter of perspective as much as anything else. Just for mm -hmm. sake of example, for instance, um, JT's goal with the motorcycle project was to build a design language that would outlast him. Hmm. Uh, that, you know, as he would say, if somebody found this uh, motorcycle walled into a barn somewhere it hadn't been seen for 100 years, right. the, the person studying it could figure out the man behind it. Um, at the same time JT was doing that, I was searching for a language for master craftsmanship and we were working in parallel at our own goals. I think it's, and, and that's why the project was called the Bienville Legacy. We were looking for his legacy, I was looking for my legacy, as was Scott. And so I think that it's a matter of awareness um, right. and your impact on your, you know, what you make makes you, if mm -hmm. you will. So um, when you're creating something you're also creating yourself right. that is creating your legacy so i think if i'm living right there isn't some one thing that i would want to be doing um i just want to be doing what i'm doing really well really nice you know if you you know i believe that uh, in our life there are these moments that happen that eventually 
you know help us become what we are so today we are because of a few things that happened that has happened in our life so when you look back what are those moments in your life or career that has uh, made the person that you are today i think they are the moments where you make as i was saying before that hard decision the the decision based in courage rather than strength um that would be everything from getting out of a a uh, toxic corporate situation that I mm-hmm. had kind of created around me to a uh, less than rewarding um marriage at the time mm-hmm. and having the courage to kind of let go of everything financial and familial and everything else mm-hmm. and say you know what who I am is most important first and people will reorganize around me next mm-hmm. and to trust in that and take that leap that those were the moments when it um made the most difference and um what is what does your uh, personal definition of success look, look like <laughs> um i would borrow a little bit from scott on that success is getting to you know some end point mm-hmm. and saying i don't have any what ifs left i did what i could i did i made wow. the brave decision each time it was necessary and i can look i can face whatever this next transition is with the piece of of saying i have no more what ifs um that is you know born from a man who faced stage 4 cancer and right. beat it um right. he has literally stared into the face of death um i had you know i've had my share of scary moments i had a motorcycle crash and some other things but never that hmm. big um and so you know as you might guess he and i will hang out from time to time and <laughs> talk about the deeper things so So yeah, that is that's our shared definition of success and I think it can work for a lot of people. Um you know you started Saint Emeric a couple of months back looks like. What <laughs> yeah. is it about? Can you give us a glimpse? Um we similar situation. Yeah, we um it's an underground restaurant essentially. We started working on it to produce it about 18 months ago. Um the goal is to provide a platform for chefs who are either beginning their career or changing their direction mid or late in their career mm-hmm. a safe place where they can experiment um serve people and audiences they might not otherwise have and so it's an intimate kind of space with mm. great equipment to produce culinary and um um you know drink driven events uh, what was the inspiration and, for you to do something like that completely different <laughs> You know, we do uh we do music related events with a partnership with an organization called So Far. Um mm-hmm. we've done engineering on the motorcycle, we've done a ton of digital just based on who I am and and what what we do is for a living. Right. Um but one of the pieces that was missing was culinary. And so we always had a fa- uh, passion for for food. It's it's very visceral and and real and and it operates on a level much bigger than taste. Right. Right. Um And so yeah we, we and how, wanted to how, fill how that much spot. is your involvement with that um on an everyday basis um pretty good a uh, pretty fair amount i mean it's it's the room next to me um huh. where we're doing digital here and the the next room over is the is the private underground club um we are working to recruit chefs um primarily right now especially um especially women again mm-hmm. um there's a great documentary called Heat um which celebrates um you know women's journeys through the highest echelons of of the food and beverage industry and it's 
we were very lucky to reach out to, I think there were seven or so chefs highlighted there and four or five of them responded. So we're working to see if we might collaborate. Um, so yeah, it's it's similar. It's just another venue to explore right. some of the, the big ideas that we've had over the years. Jim started another project. It's called Studio for DC, which is Studio for Digital Craftsmanship. And it's a services consultancy that he founded again on the basis of user-centered design and given the fact that he moved out of manifest digital five years back and started studio for dc i just was curious to understand how different is studio for dc from manifest digital uh it is so the studio for digital craftsmanship is a re-envisioning of what um user-centered design organization could be if it wasn't based on the biz- the business fundamentals that seem to drive a company like profitability or a steady stream of work or what have you and so it's it's an organization of what i would call co-equals people who are all independent contractors mm-hmm. who come together to work on projects that um, we are able to find and land and set up in a, a profitable format so there everybody who works on it is well um, paid hmm. appropriately paid for their years of experience hmm. and the client engages as as an equal um, i've mentioned early on this kind of concept of speaking truth to power right. we will always tell the truth no matter how difficult it is mm-hmm. and it creates outcomes that otherwise wouldn't be achieved i really haven't heard of something like this ever before uh, have there been any learnings that you've actually got from doing something like this from working with clients in the way you do at studio for dc um, it's as Scott, so Scott will handle, I, I'd highlight him at some level. I mean, each of us has our own role as you're holding that line, but, um, you know, if somebody doesn't want to pay a, an agreed upon rate, for instance, or wants more work for what they, you know, what we feel we signed up for mm-hmm. holding the line and saying, no, this, we are paid for the time we put in and you've engaged us to do the work and we will do it according to your needs and interests, mm-hmm. but we need to be engaged in a fair way. Oftentimes, you know, organizations will negotiate you down on hourly rate or negotiate you right. down on time frame or whatever. We we're extremely transparent in how we, we need to operate and when you start to give those things up this happens a lot in the agency world which is why we always fought that title right. um and preferred in the years with manifest that it was a design consultancy which kind mm-hmm. of mixed two worlds we're the same way we're applying design principles here for a consultative process that uh, realizes a business outcome and so mixing those two things has been or three things has been crucial to our success right right you know uh, something i really need to ask you is uh, you've been doing so many different things and uh, and that to successfully doing them for the last what, close to 20 years how do you really keep yourself sane jim um the time the time when you don't know what to do mm-hmm. or if you can do it or what to do next um i forget who told me at the time you know it's sort of sports metaphor drive with your legs just keep going just uh-huh. drive 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 just do something right. do the next thing um that's that's my hack um you know when you're depressed which happens when you're lost or confused which definitely happens right. um keep going 
Um, you don't know why or where you're going, but I can guarantee you it, it goes. And that's, you know, that's the core thing with the experience with the motorcycle project. Right. It's really, really, really hard work hmm. to be a master. That's it. There's no intelligence necessarily to it. There's competence, but not intelligence. Somebody came, we introduced somebody to JT at one point who said, what's, what's it like to be so talented implying a gift? Right. And he exploded. He was just furious. How dare you call me that? Mm. I've simply worked my ass off. <laughs> and I think the same is true for everybody. Work really hard. That's it. Don't work so hard that you lose yourself right. or lose those around you, but just work really hard. That's it. Beautiful. You know, if, uh, if you were me sitting here with you having this conversation, Jim, what is that one question that you would ask that I didn't ask so far? <laughs> I don't know. You've asked uh, really good questions. Um, I don't know. I think we are often asked um, kind of, you know, what's your favorite piece of work or what's the best thing you've done? And I think the best answer to something like that is often, you know, whatever's next. If you had a chance to share some words of wisdom with, uh, with the Jim Jacoby that you were 10 years back, what would those <laughs> words be? Uh, it would be to believe in yourself more than you th think you can at the moment. And as scary as it seems, have fun. It's going to be okay. Um, because it is okay. It works out as terrible as it might seem. You know, I was right. at the end of the March 1st days having to lay off hundreds of people at a time. It was mm -hmm. soul sucking, but it's, just a moment in time it's going to be okay and as long as you're a human to the other humans around you you're all going to be okay we just have to be good to each other as best we can so uh early on in the uh, conversation you talked about making money while preserving integrity and soul right mm -hmm. it's a very tough thing you're talking about uh, having the cake and eat it um, yep is there a simple advice that you would like to share uh with listeners that can actually help them I think so. I think the advice, yeah, I think the advice is to make something first, hmm. make, make a thing, make a service. Don't, don't set out to make money. Um, there's, I've spoken on it um, in other circumstances. If all, if your goal is to make money, you make nothing. Right. And, and if you make nothing, you are nothing uh, hmm. by, by virtue of the, what you make makes you cycle. Right. So I get very frustrated with people who are out to make money or get rich or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. That's gross to me. Um, so my advice would be to, to make something that first all the benefits will follow. And that was Jim Jacoby. He's a serial entrepreneur, a designer, a groundbreaking innovator who's designed and built businesses around conferences, motorcycles, food, and so much more. Do check out Jim's website to know more about all of his projects. You can get all the links to Jim's website and all of his projects in the show notes, which you can find at designyourthinking.com slash S2E36. That's season two, episode 36. Again, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please do subscribe to the show at designyourthinking.com slash subscribe. Just head over there and subscribe to the show in whichever form you want to. 
And if you liked this episode, go ahead and leave the show a rating and review. Now you can do that by heading over to designyourthinking.com slash review. Just type that in your browser and leave us a review right there. If you are on an Apple device, of course, I would love for you to leave a review in the iTunes store. You will find a link to the iTunes store right inside designyourthinking.com slash review. The show is also available on Spotify, Google Play and YouTube. Just type designyourthinking.com slash Spotify or Google Play or YouTube to get right there. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time today. Until I see you with the next episode, take care and cheers, my friend.